You're listening to Road to Resilience. I'm John Earl. In the video, there's a man lying face up on an operating table. A blue cloth covers his face and upper torso, except for a square of exposed skin on his sternum. The man is nervous. He grips the hand of a woman out of frame. The cloth blocks his view of what's about to happen to him. The doctor, dressed in a white coat, shuttles back and forth to his instrument tray. He moves confidently, preparing the needle, and then the instrument he'll use to extract marrow from the man's sternum, which he'll later test for leukemia. It looks as scary as it sounds, but the atmosphere in the room isn't grim or somber. Instead, the operating room is full of singing. Hallelujah. 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 I can feel you screwing something there. I don't want to see, but I can feel a little bit. Ate my hurt now. Oh, great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh. You feel it? A little bit. Great. But not much. All right. I think it's Very good. good. Great job. Great job. The doctor in the clip is Gabriel Serra. He's an oncologist at Mount Sinai West where he serves as medical director of the chemotherapy infusion suite. Dr. Sarah grew up in Lebanon. He cut his teeth in medicine during the country's long civil war. And along the way, he developed a style of medicine, or really of being, that I find fascinating. Dr. Sarah is all love, zero BS. He's brutally honest with his patients, but he also cries with them. He's no nonsense, but he's also into feelings and deep listening. In our conversation... Dr. Sarah talks about the experiences that shaped his philosophy of radical honesty, and he explains how telling the truth helps him and his patients to be resilient, even at the end of life. Dr. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I, you have a mug, and uh, it says, don't sugarcoat it, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell me a little bit about that mug? So basically, this, this mug is a mug I keep on my desk, and basically what it says is uh, Honesty is better than sugar-coated BS. And I can tell you, patients love it. Mm -hmm. They sit down and like, while I'm talking and they realize that I'm I'm being honest, they look at each other and say, well, you know, it's written on the mug, you know. (laughs) And then many pull their phone and take a picture of it. And they tell me, I love that. So I, I, I leave it on my desk because I think it gives them a flavor of what they're gonna have when they talk with me. I really mean what is it on that mug. And I mean everything I say to them, and I, they know that. And once, once they know that you will never betray them, they will go everywhere with you. And it transforms your experience as a doctor and as a patient. And we're gonna talk all about it. But I wanna start from the very beginning. Um, I know you grew up in Lebanon. Yes. And uh, when we spoke, you told me that you grew up in a family of people who did not BS each other. Yeah. I feel very blessed that I have a father and a mother who are both totally honest, truthful, no attitude, no issues in being honest, and never liked hiding anything from anybody. So we grew up this way, and at home, we never lied to each other, which is like an amazing thing retrospectively, because for me, it was the normal. Uh, But I realized how much around me, you know, uh, there is different level of honesty. You know, p- people actually can be honest a little bit or a lot or 50%, 70%. In my family, it was 150%. That sounds like it would cause chaos. Yeah. <laughs> in a family. 
<laughs> so, so, uh, so, which was great, you know. Uh, and, and so when you grow up this way, uh, you feel good about yourself. And you're never ashamed to do whatever you believe you should do. You went through a very intense experience as a young person. You lived in Beirut yeah. during the Civil War. Yes. Tell me a little bit about your experience during the war and how it kind of shaped you as a person. You know, the, the war, uh, the kind of war we lived, uh, which I hope you will never experience in your life, uh, even if you see movies, you, you, there's no way you can get the feeling of what it is when you are sitting in your room and then a bombshell enters your room or the room next door or sniper fires come and hit the desk next to your shoulder. Uh, when you have uh, your neighbor that is brought to your emergency room uh, half dead and friends come to the hostel like wounded with blood all over. So, you know, these kind of things. You were a medical student at the time? I was actually an intern. So we were in the OR mm -hmm. and we were operating nonstop, 24 seven. Yeah. And, and our surgeons were amazing people, the strength they have, the courage. And during the bombing, they would be operating with being calm and teaching us what should be done. And so we were interned helping them, but they were performing surgery. Uh, when we spoke, you told me stories about, you know, riding a motorcycle through the streets of Fort uh -huh. <laughs> Beirut. And you told me a story about um, playing guitar in a bomb shelter. Yeah. So at some point for about almost a hundred days, my hospital was under siege with daily bombing. Sometimes we had one bomb every 30 seconds falling on us for like several hours. And so we had a uh, basement, which we transformed into shelter. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's untenable, obviously. So I used to play guitar. What else could we do? where we are like stuck inside that room waiting to, to die maybe. Mm. So everybody got, would start singing with me and even dancing while the building was trembling because I think it kept a lot of people sane. You know, it took my, my, our mind of being scared to have fun. So I what think- What songs would you play? You, what songs? Uh, I yeah. played Beatles, I played, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all kind of- Anyone rhythmics. in particular, when, what would you play when, you know, it's really the bombs are coming down? La Bamba. La Bamba. La Bamba. That's is the like, one that would put everybody at ease. Oh, this one, everybody starts <laughs> <laughs> get excited. Everybody knows the song, you know. Yeah. It sounds like Apocalypse Now. You yeah. seen the film? No, I haven't. I haven't, but I heard about it. But It's yeah. the absurdity yeah. and, and the music and the culture with violence and bombing. And it's those things in one place. Totally. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Being, being able to be calm under fire and being able to tell the truth. Yeah. Were those the main lessons that you take away from that experience of being in Beirut? So when you experience these things, you're basically facing death straight in your face. Uh, and when you face it many times and with the people around you facing the same thing, you realize that the war doesn't allow anyone to put around because there's no room, there's no time. You could die tomorrow, you could die tonight. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, certainly, and certainly it made me become familiar with death. You know, I've seen so many people dying before becoming even an oncologist that I think that somewhere it made me comfortable talking about death 
dealing with this, mm. helping patient die peacefully and family accepting their deaths. So um, what is the next milestone in your story of truth-telling? So I was a fellow in my third year, and I'm called to see a woman from, I think, Puerto Rico, who was found to have a liver cancer by chance. She came for something else, she did some tests, they found that she had a tumor in the liver that was inoperable, incurable, but giving her zero symptoms. So she was feeling perfectly fine. Mm. So she was an old lady, and I gave, I gave a consultation as an oncology fellow. And I didn't tell her what she had because the family asked me not to tell her what she has. And I thought it was reasonable not to tell her what she has because she had no symptoms. Hmm. So why bothering her with the truth? And about three months later, she comes back to the hospital. Now she is very sick. She is yellow. She's jaundiced. Her tumor had grown markedly in her liver and the family again told me what to tell her what she has. And I said, no, this time she's sick. She's gonna die. She needs to know what's going on. I cannot play games with her. And I went down and sat with her, held her hand. And I told her exactly what she had. I told her that she had a bad cancer that grew in three months, that she's gonna die from this probably in weeks. And she probably felt my sincerity because all what she did when I finished, she hugged me gave me a big smile and thanked me. She told me, I know what I'm gonna do now. I'm gonna take the plane and go to Puerto Rico and die there. And she was kind of happy about her project to go home and die there. And she made her family feel good about it. And I felt that I set her free by telling her where her life is going. And now she felt not only I think that she knew what she had so she can make a decision to go home and die there. But I think she felt respected and dignified and she felt in control of her life. Hmm. That day I said to myself, that's it. I should learn from this case, never again. Never again. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a big lesson for me, yeah. And after this, I did not understand how people could lie. Explain the temptation. The temptation is huge is huge because it is very painful to tell somebody he's gonna die. Very painful to say this to people. You think it's easy for us to say that? It is painful. You don't want to hurt anybody's feeling. So you feel that if you don't say it, it will not be as painful. I had a patient who just passed away this morning, hmm. okay? He was admitted to the hospital four days ago, not doing well, and I knew he was not gonna make it probably out of the hospital. Hmm. And I come and I, you know, sit down next to him, hold his hand, talk to him. And he tell me, doctor, I don't understand where we're going. I told him, we know exactly where you're going. Your cancer is growing in your lung. You're not gonna survive this. You have probably a few days left. So it sounded horrible to say this to somebody. Even me, who I, I feel I am experienced in telling the truth and I am I worship the truth. Don't think it was easy. When he asked me this question with the whole family around me sitting next to him and crying, you feel like you are a butcher, like you put the knife in the chest of the guy. But no, it wasn't. I, I, I overcame that moment where I hesitated a little bit, but I said, I can't play around with my words. He's asking me a question. He needs the answer. 
But I can tell you, after I said that, he relaxed. Because now he knew where he was going. And he died this morning very peacefully. The last three days were very peaceful for him and his family. So it's never easy to say the truth. Never. Never. But it's always rewarding to say the truth. Always. There's another aspect, which is being honest with yourself about your experience. And I know that that also has played a part in your work. Mm. So I am against actually the idea that we oncologists build a wall to protect ourselves from being upset or sad. I don't believe. I think this is, this is actually lying. Hmm. This is for me lying to yourself. We should hug our patient. We should be happy with them. We should be sad with them. We should cry with them. I don't have any problem with that. Why? Because I think that it's a dance. You know, you, you're dancing with a patient very intimately. You, you, you are really, just imagine res- the responsibility you have when you are treating a life and that situation. And that patient trusts you. Trusts you more than his family, probably. So I think you need to show, not to show, to feel close to these people. I, I feel close to all my patients. I'm reminded of a clip I saw of you singing with a patient while mm. taking bone marrow out. Yes. In the sternum. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking when you have an intimacy with your patient. Yeah. You know, when, when I look back at this video myself, I what was you, moved. What do you see in that video? Well, I see harmony. Harmony, basically. And I see transforming an intense moment in a beautiful moment. Uh, instead of having a painful, scary torture. You know, uh, it actually was fun. We laughed so much after that, the three of us. Yeah. I'm wondering if there are any other um, kind of steps along the way that are significant to forming your ideas about honesty, about truth-telling. Yeah. No, I, well, I think, I think it's like going to the gym, you know, being honest, being truthful. The more you do it and the better you become at it. And I, I feel not, I'm not like super, super old, but I'm way older than you guys. <laughs> and I've been around for a long time and I am much more aware today about how delicious the truth is. It's delicious. What does it taste like? It tastes amazing. You always walk away feeling that you had a great meal, if you are honest. And you are able to be honest with empathy, to be honest by keeping the dignity of the person, to be honest and show them how much you care. And that's why you are so honest with them. And, and, and that feeling is amazing. And, and, uh, and patients appreciate it. What do you tell the doctors and nurses working under you? What, um, what sort of advice do you give them um, in terms of both being a good physician, but also being resilient? It's a work in process, and it's not like one advice. You know, I think it's much more, you can teach them by example more than by talking. I think if they see you operating based on your own principle, they can get what you're talking about. So they learn by example. Yeah, learn by example and also state of mind. You know, you, you can't prepare your speech. I don't believe in preparing any words. I say, and I never prepare what I'm going to say to people. Never. I put myself in a state of mind of listening. That's the most important. 
if if I'm going to talk to you about something that is very important for you or your problem, whatever, I want to clear my head of my daily life to a point where it's empty. Once it's empty, I can sit with you and feel your feelings. Well, sounds like a meditative state. Yes. And if I'm able to do that when I'm sitting with you, now I not only I'm going to listen to your words, I'm going to hear your feeling. I'm going to feel your feelings. And I'm going to talk to your feelings. And the right word will come out from my mouth because I'm in communication with your feelings. But that needs training. It doesn't happen overnight. That needs awareness. And that needs accepting to spend the time to listen to the other person. Today, we're not taking the time for anything anymore. We're constantly rushing. So you need to empty your head and be completely available to listen to the other person. And then you know what to say. So with every patient, I will say something different depending on the state of mind of that moment. So it all sounds like if, if you were to give advice to someone, you say, how does someone learn how to tell the truth? If I were to try to boil down what you said, it's okay. spend time with people who tell the truth and really listen to the person that you're talking to. Yes. Read yes. between the lines, listen to what they are really feeling and what they really need. Exactly. And be a militant of the truth. If the truth is your way of operating, you build gradually strength, inner strength, because you are basically validating your principles. Mm. And I think when you have principles that are well-grounded, even if you lose everything in life, you remain grounded. Dr. Sarah, I'm just wondering how this, like, how do you transfer this to, to life? You know, when you take off your white coat and go out into the world, are you a maniac about the truth yes. with your kids? With, oh, more than ever. With the waiter at the restaurant? More than ever. Oh, more yeah. than ever. More than ever. Yeah, and, and I know that my wife or my friends tell me, well, don't, why, why don't you shut up? I say, I say, listen, if I tell this guy that he didn't do a good job, with respect, I'm helping him. He's getting feedback. And if I tell him he's doing a great job, I'm helping him with getting feedback. Feedback is critical, but I have to say it with respect. Mm. There is a way to talk. I, I can tell you something really difficult to hear, but if I do it with respect and empathy, you will not feel insulted. Later in our conversation, we talked about what it means to die a beautiful death. It's a little off topic, but I loved it too much. I couldn't leave it out. It doesn't have to be ugly. It doesn't have to be ugly. You don't have to laugh about this. No, I never do. But you can be light about it. And if you have no choice but to die, why does it have to be ugly? Why can it be beautiful? When I say that, it shocks people. I'd like to have a beautiful death. Why not? You're going to die regardless. Mm. So it might as well be a good experience. What does a beautiful death look like? I think it's not one way of looking at it. And I think it will change from one patient to the other, from one experience of death to the other. But at least one thing that I would think should always prevail is having peace going into the process of dying, accepting that you're going to die. Uh, appreciating what you went through. I find there are five magic words. Maybe there are more people, more, but at least those are pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're dying is to tell people around you, forgive me, 
I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. If I can say this to my people around me, I think I'll have a beautiful death. But to be able to feel that you can say these things, you have to be going peacefully. You have to be accepting your dying. And the people around you have to be accepting your death and supporting your death and, and, and giving you permission to die. You know, the, the people who love you have to detach themselves from like, I want to keep you for me. No, I want to give you the freedom to die and I'm going to be okay after you die. And that's what is the permission to die that both patients, family have to give them and the doctors as well. And I think when you give permission to die to somebody, it's a gift because they don't feel that they're abandoning you. As long as you are hanging on, they feel that they are stabbing you in the back by dying, that they don't have the right to abandon you because after they die, you're going to be really bad. If you make them understand that, you know what, you can die, go ahead, I'm, I'm okay, I'm accepting your death. I thank you for what you've done for me, etc. etc. Then you make them feel free. You set them free. You need to set them free. And I, I, I tell these things to my patients. What I'm telling you right now, these are things I say to my patients, family, and to my patients. Yeah. Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming. That's all for this episode. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. We really appreciate it. Road to Resilience is a production of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Our team includes Katie Ullman, Nikki Hudson, and me, John Earl. Our executive producers are Dory Clesis and Lucia Lee. Nikki and Justin Gunn shoot video for us, and Kathy Clark shoots photographs. From all of us here, thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks.